ReachMD is proud to bring you the Pharmacy Report with your host, Linda Bernstein, PharmD, clinical professor at the School of Pharmacy, University of California, San Francisco. Thank you for joining us for the debut episode of the Pharmacy Report on ReachMD. Each week, we will bring you, the healthcare professional, a compelling mix of pharmaceutical news, expert interviews, and commentary. Today, our primary focus is on the growing threat of antimicrobial drug resistance. In our Movers and Shakers segment, Dr. Joseph Guglielmo, PharmD, Dean of the UCSF School of Pharmacy, Professor of Clinical Pharmacy, and Specialist in Infectious Disease, will address antimicrobial stewardship and the role of pharmacists and other healthcare professionals in these programs. But first, we begin with this week's headline news. Now for the lead story. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention has released Threat Report 2013. This report, Antibiotic Resistance Threats in the United States, is the first of its kind to highlight the burden and dangers posed by antibiotic-resistant organisms and the impact on human health. The CDC estimates that 2 million people get sick each year due to antibiotic-resistant organisms, and at least 23,000 die as a result. The Infectious Disease Society of America states that treating resistant infections cost the U.S. healthcare system an estimated $21 to $34 billion annually. The three microorganisms that had a threat level ranked urgent were Clostridium difficile, Carbapenem resistant Enterobacteraceae, and Neisseria gonorrhea. According to CDC Director Dr. Thomas Frieden, the most important activity to combat antimicrobial resistance is the widespread use of antimicrobial stewardship programs that ensure the drugs are used safely and appropriately. In oncology news, the U.S. Food and Drug Administration announced market approval of the first generic version of capacitabine, an oral tablet used to treat metastatic colorectal and breast cancer. The brand version, known as Zalota, was initially approved by the FDA in 1998. The generic version, produced by Teva Pharmaceuticals, comes in 150 and 500 milligram strengths. The most commonly reported adverse reactions are diarrhea, hand and foot syndrome, nausea, vomiting, abdominal pain, fatigue, weakness, and hyperbilirubinemia. And here's something to crow about for Botox lovers. The FDA has approved use of onobotulinum toxin A, also known as Botox Cosmetic, for the temporary improvement in appearance of moderate to severe lateral canthal lines known as crow's feet in adults. This adds to the product's frown line indication. There is also a growing list of interesting and varied uses for Botox, including chronic migraine, overactive bladder, severe underarm sweating, eyelid spasm, and strabismus. Botox and Botox Cosmetic may cause serious side effects that can be life-threatening hours to weeks after injection of the products and include problems swallowing, speaking, or breathing, and spread of toxin effects. Let's turn now to our main event for the show called Movers and Shakers, where I talk to the experts and find out their views on important issues facing the world of pharmacy and pharmaceuticals. Today's topic is antimicrobial resistance and the role of antimicrobial stewardship programs to combat this critical problem. My guest is the esteemed Dean of the UCSF School of Pharmacy, Dr. Joseph Guglielmo, 
Joe is a professor of clinical pharmacy with a specialty in infectious disease. He's a friend and colleague with whom I've had the distinct pleasure of working alongside on a study headed by Dr. Toby Herfindahl, measuring the impact of clinical pharmacists on the proper use of prophylactic antibiotics for surgical infection. Joe, congratulations on your recent appointment as dean. I want to thank you for your decades of leadership and service to the school and the profession. Welcome to the Pharmacy Report. Thank you. Why is it important to be vigilant about antibiotic use? Well, it's not exactly a new idea to be vigilant about antibiotic use. I think in past years, we had concerns, as with any drug use, regarding the safety of these drugs. But I think what is perhaps more in the forefront today is the fact that there has been a much better recognized associated antibiotic resistance issue, and this is an international issue, and it's very clear that the use of antibiotics is a clear risk factor to this development of resistance. And so I would say the most important reason why we need to be very vigilant about all antibiotic use today. So definitely more is not better in this case. Why is the terminology of antimicrobial versus antibiotic important when talking about this issue? I think the reason the term that we should use is antimicrobial because antimicrobials would encompass not only bacteria or drugs for treatment of bacterial infection, but those for fungal infection as well. And the resistance issue that I just recently highlighted while I think we think mostly about bacteria when we discuss this, we have very significant problems with fungi as well, particularly the yeast, particularly candida. And so the appropriate utilization of antimicrobials, which includes antifungals, using that term is probably more all-encompassing and more appropriate in an era where we have resistance with both bacteria as well as yeast. Thanks for clarifying that. In the recent report, Dr. Thomas Frieden talked about the importance of antimicrobial stewardship programs. Can you explain what those are to our listeners? So the term antimicrobial stewardship implies a program at a given institution that is intended to provide quality assurance regarding the safe and effective use of antimicrobials at that institution. And while programs like this existed even back in the 1980s, we didn't call it that. And it really was not until the Infectious Diseases Society of America guidelines, which came out in 2007, that in fact I think this term, antimicrobial stewardship, was in fact utilized as the common term referring to such a program. And in that time, I guess a stewardship program was intended really not only to ensure safe and effective use of antimicrobials, but also to be cost-effective as well. So I guess that would be the definition of an antimicrobial stewardship program today in the most essential terms. Who are the key participants in an antimicrobial stewardship program, and what are their roles within the team? I assume this is a multidisciplinary team. By definition, it must be multidisciplinary. There are strengths that I think each party brings to making the program one that is effective. And I guess the best way to answer your question would be to go back to the 2007 guidelines. And if you were to look at those, they would say the following. They would say that the core members of a stewardship team include, and they would say an infectious diseases physician, 
and a clinical pharmacist with infectious diseases training. And they do add, in addition to those two, they should also consider inclusion of a clinical microbiologist, an information system specialist, an infection control professional, and hospital epidemiologist being optimal. So the team would vary depending on the size of the institution, but I guess the key is the stewardship team should at the minimum include an infectious disease physician and a clinical pharmacist with infectious diseases training. And in terms of each of their roles, how do you see that dividing up, or is there a certain amount of overlap there? Well, at the end of the day, I do believe that a physician needs to be the person that oversees it, much like I believe a physician needs to oversee continuity of care in any healthcare setting. But in a stewardship program, I think the key role of the pharmacist, if I were to talk about UCSF as an example, would be number one, we are responsible for getting the information in terms of, for example, what the susceptibility patterns are at the given institution and updating those regularly and providing that to a multidisciplinary group of physicians and other healthcare providers to determine how the stewardship program should essentially change. The pharmacist also, in most cases, is really responsible for the day-to-day I'll use the word enforcement. I hate using that because it sounds police-like, but to just ensuring that day-to-day that the decisions that are made by this multidisciplinary team, in fact, take place. However, there are many instances where perhaps there's disagreement on what's considered to be appropriate antibiotics, and here it's very important to have that physician champion who perhaps has a better perspective looking at the whole aspect of a given patient's care to also weigh in on whether or not an antibiotic is being used appropriately within a stewardship program. So that would be, I think, the way those two key individuals divvy out in terms of their contributions to a stewardship program. So when it comes to influencing prescribers, what seems to be the best methodologies in your experience? You know, that's a very interesting question. And I think before I answer that, a little background would be, I guess my honest opinion is A problem with especially the antibiotics that have come out in the last decade or two, they have mostly been relatively safe in terms of not being associated with end organ toxicity like kidneys and the liver and ears and eyes and the like. And I think there's been a tendency to say that, you know, it can't hurt to give antibacterials to this patient, even though I'm not sure whether or not they're really infected. And furthermore, since the drugs are relatively safe, well, you know, it really won't harm things. And I think, back to your original question, I think the only way that you can really foster optimal use of antibiotics, the prescriber has to truly understand that that decision, number one, to use or not use antibiotics today, impacts potentially in a very negative way, not only this development of resistance issue, in your given patient on that given day or in the near future, but also has the capacity to impact from a more societal standpoint on resistance rates, you know, throughout the institution, perhaps throughout the area that in fact that one practices. So I think the influence, the primary influence has to be getting that piece across. And I would say my experience has been demonstrating the changes in resistance that we've seen over time 
demonstrating rates of superinfection with organisms such as Clostridium difficile and linking those back to the fact that inappropriate antimicrobials were prescribed and administered, that is the very best way. Just giving a lecture, just sending a newsletter is not enough. The prescriber has to remember what happened in their given patient on a given time when in fact antimicrobials maybe were not needed or perhaps the scope was too broad spectrum and there was harm in the way of development of resistance and or superinfection. So really when you're prescribing, it's not just for that patient in a way. You have to think not just about the patient, you have to think about all the other patients and society as a whole in terms of this whole resistance development risk. So how do you predict or what do you predict for the future of antimicrobial therapy and, and how can we train the healthcare professionals of the future to deal with this very critical issue? Well, those are very important questions. The future of antimicrobial therapy is a little bit elusive because I have to talk a little bit about the pharmaceutical industry and those that are the actual developers of new drugs. And you probably know that a very practical issue here is that it is much more difficult to get a drug to market from the very beginnings of discovering the drug to ultimately getting full FDA approval. And the cost of this is now approaching hundreds of millions of dollars, if not a billion dollars, to get a drug approved. And it turns out for antimicrobials that the return on investment is relatively modest as opposed to that seen for, say, certain cancer drugs, anti-inflammatories, antidepressants, and some other drugs. And so I mention this because the pipeline at the present time, especially for gram-negative bacterial active agents, is very poor. Now, at the moment, the Infectious Disease Society of America, among others, have been lobbying very heavily Congress to improve I guess, give some stimulation to having companies develop new antimicrobials, perhaps by extending patent and other things that would make it a more lucrative sort of thing to consider. So what the future is for antimicrobial therapy all depends on how successful the lobbying takes place and whether or not we can provide some additional reasons for pharmaceutical companies to want to invest in drugs that don't have a great return on investment. And I guess the second part of your question, how we train healthcare professionals to deal with this and be sensitive, I think that I, I guess I would refer back to the IDSA, uh, one of their review articles on this issue. I think the title was something like, Bad Bugs, No Drugs. And I think that is the message that healthcare professionals need to know, that we are having a lot of bad bugs that are multi-drug resistant, sometimes untreatable, and they do need to know there are no drugs. And I think training healthcare professionals in the future to know that if there aren't new drugs coming, then we got to use what we have well. And the best way to do that is to think about antimicrobials very differently as we compared to what we did before. And that is that we can do damage when we give antimicrobials when they were not needed. And that damage is not only to your patient that day, but impacts on society throughout at least the U.S. Joe, thanks for clarifying all those important issues for us and bringing this very important issue to the forefront of our discussion today. As a parting recommendation, perhaps there's a key reference that our listeners could refer to to learn more about this issue? Well, I think there are a number of them. One, it, it certainly would not hurt just downloading the 
2007 ITSA guidelines, which I think really go into a lot of the background on what I just talked about, and it's very easy to do it. You can find it very easily on their website, and anybody can download that. That would be, I think, a key reference that I would consider recommending for that because it really highlights this issue. There is another one out of Clinical Infectious Diseases about 2009 that talks about what are called the ESCAPE organisms, E-S-K-A-P-E, and those ESCAPE organisms are these difficult multidrug-resistant bacteria that I've been referring to. So I would say those two come to my mind as key references to learn more about the issue and what they can do. Thanks, Joe. It's been great talking with you today. I can't wait to have you on the show again. Thank you very much, Linda. Great. I've been talking with Dr. Joseph Guglielmo, Dean of the UCSF School of Pharmacy and Specialist in Infectious Disease. Well, that's all the time we have for today's episode of The Pharmacy Report. Again, I want to thank my guest, Dr. Joseph Guglielmo, Dean of the UCSF School of Pharmacy. To check out this and other episodes of The Pharmacy Report, visit our website at reachmd.com forward slash pharmacy report. That's reachmd.com slash pharmacy report. Thanks for listening. Until next time, for The Pharmacy Report on ReachMD, I'm Dr. Linda Bernstein.